Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we talked about what's believed to be the first cookbook in the Western world this week. Mm-hmm. Dere Coquinaria. Apicius is easier to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I also, uh, I like how when you listen to Latin pronunciations by people living in Italy, it does not sound nearly the same way that a lot of other folks would say them. (laughs) No. It also usually sounds more beautiful. Um, This one was super fun, and I kept writing little notes to myself about stuff I wanted to talk about. One thing... (laughs) (laughs) that I thought was really interesting. We talked a lot about Velling's translation since that was the first English translation of of this collection. And I have to say, it's it's quite fun to me because he mentions, like, no, we have to be really unbiased and really clear. But like any writer or any human, he has bias that appears in the text. Um, And he kind of clearly has a great deal of reverence and appreciation for these classical ways of cooking. Uh, And he writes about how people mistreat their food these days in many cases. Um, And he he feels like, when he was writing this, which again was in the the mid-1920s, he makes the case that we're eventually going to return back to a lot of these Roman techniques of cooking because of the ways that agriculture is going to change due to overconsumption and whatnot. So it's kind of an interesting one uh, to get his editorial asides included in the... (laughs) in the uh, the analysis, because there's a translation of the text, but like most books that you will read about this cookbook now, there's a huge section that's really like an analysis and discussion of what it contains and what it means. And he occasionally drops his editorial thoughts. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, which is pretty funny. This also always, I always talk about this, thinking about how our time will be perceived in the future and wondering if there will one day be someone trying to pick apart the Bob's Burgers cookbook and wonder how important it was culturally. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which came to mind because it's one I'm using a lot right now. I've been, I've been, uh, I have watched my way through several of your cooking. You've done, I think, two cookbooks that I have kept an eye on, the Star Wars one and the Bob's Burgers one. And I'm always, like, incredibly fascinated by what the recipe is, whether it turned out, deliciously like whether it has been added into your your household's my regular rotation rotation well and now i'm also doing there's another star wars one i did the galaxy's edge one all of those many of which are really really like regulars at our house now Um, but there's also a star wars baking book that came out just last month and i have really enjoyed that one it has some really good stuff i feel like in the in the realm of sort of branded novelty cookbooks, of which, which are things that I have always loved. They have really stepped up across the board. It used to be like they're very cutesy recipes and it usually involved like combining a lot of prefab ingredients. But now they're like, no, let's teach you how to make a cake like from scratch, uh, which I love. It's great. <laughs> but yes, I wonder if one day they'll be like, everyone put tikka masala on their burgers. It's like, no, 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 no. That was not common at all. There is also a, um, there are a lot of people, if you want to just kind of cruise around, you can do that on Pinterest, who sponsored the episode, or on, you know, any search engine. If you look for 
anything that's like Roman cooking or cook like a Roman, there are a lot of people who have either sort of brought some of these recipes up to date or there's a, a YouTube channel that you you also stumbled across, which is called A Taste of the Ancient World. And it's um, hosted by this woman named Sally Granger, who is uh, a historian and a, a cook. And she's kind of cooking through some of these recipes. There was an interesting moment, though, because she mentions that it's very important in her project to follow these recipes to the letter as much as possible, knowing obviously you have to like interpret things like measures, which you don't get. That jumped out to me because several of the translations that I had read in their commentaries kind of say exactly the opposite of like, you can't do this as a literal read. Like there's no way to do it. This is more like in the spirit of this recipe. Sure. (laughs) Which I found very interesting. And, uh, you know, she also mentioned several times that, like, there are things that you have to make from scratch. They're not just ingredients that would be available. One of her episodes is making a cheesecake, and you basically have to make the cheese yourself first. And that kind of brings up that that thing that I touched on very briefly about, like, there would have been enslaved labor to do those those hard preparation pieces. So it's very easy to be like, oh, yes, make a cheese, and then do this, and then it will be delicious. I am also going to tell you a story of my own hilarious foolishness. Okay. (laughs) I'm excited. In reading that description of Trimalchio's table, I'm so embarrassed, but it's also so funny that I'm delighted at my own foolishness. Um, There's like a mention in it of dormice. It didn't occur to me that people ate dormice. So I was reading it dormus and I'm like, what is this ingredient? Okay. And I was like <laughs> trying to look it up and I was like, oh no, just tiny little dormice. That seems like a lot of work. <laughs> I had a similar experience the first time I read through your outline because I feel like if it had said dormouse, singular. Right. I would have clocked it totally. Yes. But I it doesn't. It was plural. And my brain was like, what is a dormachy? <laughs> I feel somewhat better knowing we both landed at this. What is this? What is this new thing I didn't what know is this about? Exotic thing. Yeah. Uh yeah. I also I and then when I heard you say it out loud as we were recording, I was like, all right, dormouse. Yeah. I know what a dormouse is. Yeah, well, and it it's um I mean to be fair, there are like we said some other ingredients that you got to figure out what they are. Yeah. Or find someone else who has figured out what they are, which is really the case for me. So in that case, I thought, "Oh, I don't I don't know what this is." I didn't know. This is another one that people are probably going to be like, "Um, ding dong, people have been using that forever." Yeah. Lovage? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As an herb, never yeah. never on my radar. So I'm like, what is that? And then I'm like, oh, it's yeah. actually quite commonly. <laughs> yeah, I'd, that's definitely an, an herb. I would not say that's an herb I have in the cabinet right now, but it's definitely I think a thing I know of and uh, have seen growing in herb gardens and stuff. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of herbs that I don't know about, I'm sure. Um, I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who is a very smart person who did not know that savory was also an herb like a, a thing. You're like, mm-hmm. no, savory is a descriptor. And I'm like, no, no, but it's also, also an actual ingredient. It's like, oh, yes. fabulous. Yes. Uh, 
<laughs> Even in modern cooking, we're all still learning about things that people eat. <laughs> I saw some Twitter threads over the weekend that were about uh, how in a lot of the world, cuisine involves layering different flavors over one another to make these, like, really nuanced, interesting combinations of flavors. But in Europe, the trend became to to combine like flavors because food should taste like itself. Right. Um, And I was like, wow, I... I'm intrigued by this idea and now want to go research it more. (laughs) All I can think of is Remy and Ratatouille going, no, now take a bite of this with this. I mean, anyone can cook, right? (laughs) And the reasoning for it in uh, in the Twitter threads that I read was that when spices became more widely available, it was no longer like the exclusive domain of rich people to be able to have spiced food and like that drove this trend. I have not been able to confirm that yet, but I was like, this also very interesting idea. It's interesting that you mentioned that because that is another thing that comes up in that Velling translation. Because his thing was like, note in this how at this time, you know, they're grinding up their pepper and everything fresh and they're integrating that with the cooking. And he was like, now, today, it's very common to, like, cook a thing and then season it, and it's never really as delicious, and that's why we end up throwing gravy and sauce all over everything, because we don't actually know what any meat tastes like, you know, when it's actually roasted properly, Uh, which is interesting that 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 ties into a thing you have been thinking about as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I really want to make that weird pea lasagna. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, that sounds really interesting to me. I also really like peas, so. I historically am not the peas' biggest fan. I don't mind them, but they're just not, like, a thing I would naturally gravitate to. And sometimes I'll leave them out of a recipe and go, like, eh, peas. Um, but somehow, I don't know, a casserole of layers of peas with bacon and mm-hmm. leeks and what, basically whatever you have on hand. And the ground-up pine nuts with all of what That sounds like a beautiful yummy thing. And that white sauce sounds quite good. That might happen at my house. (laughs) But then it also makes you think, right, this is what I love about cookbooks. And I I didn't know that I loved cooking for a long time in my life because my mom was one of those people that, like, the kitchen was her domain and get out of my way and don't bug me in the kitchen. Um, So I didn't get to do a lot of cooking when I was younger. And then when I really started to and discovered I loved it, one of the the things that I love about cookbooks for me is how they kind of unlock your imagination, where you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I could do this as written, but what if instead of peas, I used chickpeas or, you know, like anything, anything, any sub out that you do on a recipe? That's what kind of gets me excited always when I'm looking at recipes. Is, yeah. One, I want to make this as written, and then I want to make a crazy version that <laughs> has other stuff that's not mentioned here and see what happens. Because that's just fun. That's that's yeah. what makes kitchens fun for me. Creativity. Uh, let's go eat. Let's do. <laughs> uh, this week, we talked about Johann Struency. Mm-hmm. Whew, what a story that is. Yeah, I, um, so, <laughs> so in, your, in your introduction at the top of the episode, you talk about how this story is a lot better known, uh, where it actually happened. And cracked me up a little bit because there have been various times that I've been, you know, reading about some historical figure 
who is not from the U.S. and whose lives, his, whose life and actions, like, aren't that directly connected to U.S. history in an obvious way. Uh, and sometimes, you know, something that was written in, let's just say, the U.K., will kind of be like, well, as everyone knows, he did this, this, and this. And uh-uh. I'm like, I don't know that. <laughs> right. Yeah, there is actually um, a medical center in Germany called Struensee House, and they talk about uh, Johann Struensee on one of their their websites pages and and how they try to uphold his ideals in terms of you know treating people with of from all strata uh, of of the social spheres with care uh, with equal care, and so uh, he clearly you know has has name recognition in a way that I don't think he gets over here at all. Because like I said, I had to really, like, you find very abbreviated versions of his life story in English, but, like, any of the really, like, in-depth stuff, you either have to go to um, a scholarly journal that has translated part of it, or, like I did in some of it, like, I got English translations that were done decades and decades and decades ago for some of Mm -hmm. them. Um... So it's a little bit, a little bit trickier. (laughs) And it explains why it might be harder or less likely for people in the U.S. or in primarily English-speaking countries to know about him. Um, There have been a number of fictional pieces uh, written, and there's a a film, I think, from 2012 that's in Danish um, about him. But again, that's uh, not necessarily going to be what most... U.S. audiences are are engaged with, right? Uh, it's it's such a good story, though, right? Like in my head, there's a version of this story that stars a very young Mads Mikkelsen, and it's qu- quite appealing. Okay, um, I think he's in the Danish movie, but I mm-hmm. and I don't even know which character he plays. I haven't seen that movie, um, but I I want him to be in everything anyway, and he's darling. So I, as I was doing my research, I just pictured him. The one thing that really jumped out at me, and we didn't really focus on it a lot, we mentioned that um, the Queen was quite young when she died, but Struency was as well. He was in his, his 30s. He wasn't, you know, when you think about someone who has kind of risen and seized all this power, in, in my head anyway, I tend to think of uh, someone a little bit older who knows the world well enough to really execute on their ambitions. Mm-hmm. Men, no, <laughs> he was quite young. <laughs> uh, which uh, it's that's another one of those things where I go, oh, if he hadn't gotten himself into trouble, mm-hmm. and he had just been a doctor and advocated for reform in all of these things that that, like I said, his ideals seemed to be pretty good. I'm sure there were problematic aspects of it that I I'm not privy to or haven't examined, um, like. W- if he had just become a statesman and had advocated for reform in those areas, could he have done a lot more with his life? Yeah. Than, than the way it played out where a lot of his reforms initially got rolled back anyway? I don't know is the answer. That's that's Milan Kundera's unbearable lightness of being. There's only one way through and you don't know the other possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> so my weird thought process during all of this... Um, I have been watching the uh, the CW TV show Rain mm-hmm. on Netflix. It has become the show that I watch while I'm on the exercise bike. 
And uh, I kind of describe it as Mary Queen of Scots fan fiction because uh, Mary Queen of Scots is a central character, but a lot of the plot has no basis in reality whatsoever. And toward the end of the series, uh, uh, one of the other central characters um, is, is Charles IX of France. And the depiction of Charles IX of France really reads a lot like what we just talked about today. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, this is interesting to me, how it just seems like a totally different royal's personality was picked up and put onto here. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not what happened, but... Right, but you can uh, cherry-pick the most interesting parts, right? Um, <laughs> of a completely different monarch. Sure. <laughs> I mean, at that point, it's fictionalized. It's um, so it fictionalized. really, really interesting to me how much medical scholarship has been devoted to trying to figure out what was really happening with Christian VII based on Struency's writing. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is a, a big case made both for schizophrenia and for porphyria, depending on, on which scholar is looking at it. There are certainly valid ways that they landed each of those. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I would not um, pretend like, yes, this one is the best. I don't know. Um, but I, I see where, like, the symptomatic behavior lines up with a list of symptoms that we would recognize today. It's a little bit of a weird space because normally you and I always talk about, like, we wouldn't try to um, diagnose anybody historically because they're dead. They cannot be examined. And we are not doctors. (laughs) And we are not doctors. Um, And this is a unique, a particularly unique situation because, I mean, we're not doing it, but but for medical scholars to do it, they are working with source documentation from his doctor, mm-hmm. um, which makes it kind of interesting. Another thing that I didn't mention in the the main episode, because I couldn't find one of the things that's mentioned as a, a verification of it, was that Christian VII himself did not think of Struency as a bad person at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are even some indications that he had wished that he could have saved Struency and his his close friend that was also beheaded. Of course, no one was really listening to what he wanted, even in his moments of lucidity, so that didn't help at all. But um, it's a... What a tangle. Humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like we should figure out a way to end this on a more up thing. Um <laughs> Um, I'm I'm, trying to think of a more up thing. Do I know a more up um, thing? Oh, yes. So I was right. Um, A a Royal Affair is the Danish historical drama that was made in 2012. It does star Mads Mikkelsen, which everything should. Um, (laughs) Just as a a rule of thumb, everything should star Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, So I didn't pull that right out of thin air. And he does play Struensee. But even so, he would have been, I think, and this is no shade to Mads Mikkelsen, a little old for the role at that point. hmm Because he was born in 1965, which means he's how much older? Yeah, he would have been a little old. Um, again, it's Mads Mikkelsen. Play whoever you want, whenever you want. <laughs> it's fine. It's just fine. <laughs> There's a fun place to wrap it up. Everybody think about Mads Mikkelsen. 
Uh, if this is your actual weekend coming up, we hope that it is a good one and that you get some rest and recuperation and maybe watch good films with Mads Mikkelsen in them. Uh, if this is not your weekend per se and you're working, we hope that goes as smoothly as possible, that people are as nice to you as possible, uh, and that you make it through without too much stress. Otherwise, we will see you all back here tomorrow with a classic episode. And then on Monday, we'll be here again with brand new stuff. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.